This morning we are in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, I would invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, you can borrow one of our Bibles and you will find our text on page 835. On page 835, Matthew chapter 28 this morning. Today we are bringing to a conclusion a short series that we have done highlighting through uh, Matthew's gospel, seeing the fulfillment of God's promises in the coming of Christ. And if you have not been here, or if you are a person who cannot remember what they had for dinner last night, and therefore certainly aren't going to remember the last six weeks of sermons, let me, let me summarize for you where we have been. We began our series by looking at Jesus' baptism and his temptation, how he came as the new and better Israel, coming out of Egypt and through baptism uh, into his wilderness experience as the true Son of God. More than that, we saw he was the new Adam who was not just tempted in a garden but in a desert wasteland and yet still came through victorious, securing righteousness for a people. Then we saw Jesus' authority as he taught his people what life in God's kingdom was supposed to be like. In fulfillment of the law and the prophets, Jesus spoke with the very authority of God in the flesh, both comforting and commanding his people with divine authority. Then we saw Jesus' mission as the promised Messiah. This promised ministry brought salvation through a life of suffering that culminated in the ultimate price paid, death, even death on a cross. A death like any other, though, he satisfied God's just and righteous wrath against sin, even our own sin. And we saw how that Christ-centered mission also becomes the mission of Christ's people, as he tells us, as we seek to follow him, to take up our own cross, to die, perhaps physically, though not necessarily, but rather even in a more difficult way to die to ourselves, to die to our own ambitions, our own desires, and to live for him. Next we saw Jesus' glory as Christ took a handful of his disciples with him after a time of prayer up to a mountain where the veil of Jesus' humanity was temporarily pulled back and the the glory of his divine nature shone out like the noonday sun before Peter, James, and John. There the spirits of Moses and Elijah appear before him, again signaling Jesus' fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, all the law of the prophets bearing witness to him, and with amazing clarity showing his fulfillment of God's promises yet again. After that, we saw how Jesus' meal fulfilled the promise of a new covenant as we looked at the Last Supper Jesus had with his disciples before his arrest and betrayal. Here he looked forward to just a few hours, a few hours to the cross where he would ratify that new covenant, not with the blood of an animal, but with his own precious blood. That same night we saw Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, showing his struggle as he was preparing for his saving death. He knew the cup of God's judgment that had been long promised and had been poured out in just tiny drops throughout human history. He was about to take up and drink down to the very dregs of death. Then just two days ago, on Good Friday, we saw Jesus' cross. And there that dreadful cup was indeed finished before a watching world. 
As Jesus hung on the cross, all of God's wise plan and precious promises came into reality. Here, Jesus, God the Son, atoned for the sins of his people, offering himself as the final perfect sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sin and freedom from sin, that brings reconciliation with God and adoption from God. It brings the promise of final defeat of all our most deadly spiritual enemies, sin, death, and Satan himself. And today we bring to completion this picture of Jesus' work of obedience to the Father and salvation for his people as we behold his resurrection from the dead. And from the outset, we need to understand why today of all days is so important. If, there is, if there's any day to be at church, it is today. Because for the Christian, certainly the cross stands, as it were, as the, the apex of our faith, as we saw on Friday. But it is the resurrection that causes that to be true. It is the validation of the cross The Apostle Paul helps us understand that the significance of Jesus coming back from the dead when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he didn't die and come back to life, if he didn't die on the cross and then come out of the tomb, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why why would he say that? Because the resurrection, again, is the final final vindication of Christ's sufferings. It shows that everything that he said he was going to do on the cross, he actually did. That his death was acceptable to God in our place for our sin. If there is no risen Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. If there is no risen Christ, there is no hope of heaven. There is no salvation from God. All the preaching you have ever heard in your life is meaningless and the church is a waste of time. This is why the resurrection is so important. This morning we want to see this glorious reality of Christ coming back from the dead. We want to see how his first disciples and even his most stubborn enemies reacted to him coming back to life. We want to see how Christ himself said that his people should think about his resurrection and the implications it has for their life day in and day out. We begin by setting the stage for all this by reminding ourselves of what just happened in the narrative, namely the death of Christ. And so if you flip back to chapter 27, you will read about Jesus' arrest by the Romans and Jewish authorities. We will read about his so-called trial and conviction by mob rule. We will read about his beating and his crucifixion. And then in verse 50, we read that after six hours of agony on the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That is to say, he died. Beginning at verse 55, then we read this. There were also many women who were there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. And laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, that is Jesus, how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go out and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, 
and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, at this point in the narrative, there is no doubt that Jesus has died. The Romans alone were experts in death, and there is no plausible way that Jesus came down from that cross not being dead. Furthermore, you have his friend Joseph who, who begs for the body, though abused in life, to be treated with reverence and death. There is no way his friend would not be sure he was dead before he sealed him up in his own tomb. From friends and foes alike, the verdict is the same. Jesus was dead. His life was gone. And yet the stark, the stark, dark scene only serves to highlight the glory and beauty of the rest of the story. As we consider Jesus' resurrection, his coming back to life, we see four scenes, four movements of the narrative that show the resurrection's importance and relevance for us today. First we see this, we see the victory of the risen Christ. We see the victory of the risen Christ. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Now imagine these women coming to the tomb. They are coming to do what they could not do before the body was buried. And that is anointed with spices and fragrant oils. There was no, there was no embalming in that day. And so they would have uh, piled up all these things on the body to make it smell good and to preserve it they're walking slowly surely still in mourning still at shock at what had happened they arrive at the tomb and are shocked again the stone is gone the guards are on the ground the tomb is empty all they find is an angel surely more shocking to them in fact he has to calm them down and say don't be afraid it's okay it's okay and then he gives them the glorious message that christ is risen from the dead he had accomplished the salvation they had longed for by dying on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. All their hopes of Jesus being the longed-for Messiah, the promised Savior King, had been dashed on the rocks just two days before. But now they were brought back to life, a flame in their hearts, because the tomb was empty. They know he is alive and he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He has faced down death and he has conquered it. Just as he said before when he brought Lazarus back to life, he was, he is the resurrection and the life. Notice their response to this news, verse 8. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to the Galilee, and there they will see me. The women's hope turns into joyful adoration at the sight of Jesus. They grasp hold of his feet, and they worship him. 
that, that kind of response is an evidence of their true, humble faith in Jesus Christ. He is not just another man. He is not just their friend. He is their Lord. More than that, these women show us that Christ is not just worthy of worship. He is also worthy of obedience. Notice the instruction that he gives them. Not to be afraid, but to go to his brothers, that is his disciples, and to meet him in Galilee. And although the next verse immediately shifts the scene away from these women, it does so by first telling us they did exactly as Jesus instructed. They were going to tell the disciples about Jesus' resurrection and his command that they go and meet him in Galilee. And in these women, we see today the appropriate response to the victory of the risen Christ. It involves humble, joyful faith that results in obedience and worship. The question we have to ask ourselves is this, is that our response to the risen Christ? Is that how we respond to him even today? Is your heart warm and tender towards Christ, ready to praise him, ready to serve him? Or are you indifferent towards him? Is your heart cold towards him? As we sing songs, even as we have this morning, of his death and his resurrection, his life, his exaltation of all things. Do you find yourself choking up? Do you find misty eyes? Or do you find your mind wandering to what lunch will be? During the weeks, can you read scriptures about Jesus and find yourself bored? Can you sit by idly while others profane his name and feel no anger, no pain, no grief? Do you really love the risen Christ who is victorious for you? What is your response to the victory of Christ? We've seen an appropriate response, but we also see an inappropriate response. Here's the second thing that we see. We see the denial of the risen Christ. The denial of the risen Christ. It's interesting that today there are all kinds of explanations for why Jesus didn't rise from the dead. All kinds of theories are put forward to explain the tomb. If you were at Secret Church lot this past Friday night, you heard some of them. First of all, that Jesus didn't really die in the first place. We kind of already debunked that one this morning. Some claim that the disciples were delusional, that he stayed dead, and they, they experienced a kind of mass hallucination in seeing him back to life. Others say that he died, but wild dogs got into the tomb and ate his body. My personal favorite, at least in terms of getting a good laugh, is the theory advanced several years ago by a man named Hugh Schoenfeld in his book, The Passover Plot. In fact, just by, I don't do this very often, but in terms of visual aid, I have a copy of the book right here. Did Jesus really die on the cross, it says, the stormy bestseller by Dr. Hugh J. Schoenfeld, The Passover Plot, a new interpretation of the life and death of Jesus. Well, what does this waste of an afternoon's read actually say? Here's, here's what he said. He said that Jesus had planned all along to be crucified. In fact, it was, during, it was during the Lord's Supper that he tells them that he is arranged to be drugged with kind of fortified wine and has medicine and stimulants and all kinds of things. But as he's crucified and as he's swooning, this wine will keep him alive. And after he's buried, he arranges for the disciples to come and to steal his body away so that he can say he died and rose back from the dead. But something went wrong. Jesus wasn't as smart as he thought he was. Because he didn't count on, uh, which we read about in, in one of the other accounts, the Roman guard checking to make sure he was dead by poking his pericardial sac, the, 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 the area around the heart to make sure he was really dead. And so he actually died on the cross. 
And therefore, when the disciples went to recover his body and revive him, they found him dead. And so they simply made up the story of the resurrection. So much for Mr. Schoenfeld's theory. I mean, it's ludicrous. On so many levels, that doesn't hold up to real life, to our experience, even to history. First of all, who plans on being crucified? I mean, there are far less painful ways to fake your death, friends. No no one wants to to go through that. Second of all, it's clear from the Gospels that though Jesus himself said, I will die and rise again, I will die and rise again, the Gospels were also clear, they they didn't get it. They weren't expecting the resurrection. You, you, you read the rest of the Gospels, they're not only in mourning, they go back to their old lives. Peter's back to being a fisherman again. He thinks, well, that was, that was a great three years, but it's done. How, how could we have been so stupid to follow this man? We thought he was the Messiah. They're not, they're not looking for a resurrection. It wasn't their plan from the beginning. Yet after the resurrection, what do you see happening? You see a band of backwater Jews willing to take on the Roman government, not with swords, not with war, but with words because of their confidence that Jesus is Lord. How does a man like Peter who who denies Jesus before a little girl, who even uses probably profanity to curse his name, and then when it's just a few short weeks is enduring beating and torture at the hands of the Romans and eventually even says, I'm not worthy to be crucified in death. Turn me upside down. How does it go? How does it go from one to the other? Only this, Jesus really came back from the dead. The only way to explain the willingness of virtually every disciple to give up everything, to go across the globe and to die a martyr's death for this man is that it wasn't just a made-up story. He really died and he really came back to life. It changed everything for them. And so it should for us as well. And yet, and yet, millions of people bought and bought into the Schoenfeld book. They believed that book rather than the biblical witness. Why? Why? But books were written to, to debunk it, and yet they still believed. Why? Because they did not want to believe. People will deceive themselves and believe the most ridiculous things just to get out of believing that Jesus Christ really died and was raised back to life. And Matthew shows us that this attitude goes all the way back to the very beginning. Look at verse 11. While the women were going to fulfill Jesus' commands, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These are the guards that were at the tomb. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day, Matthew writes. Remember the guards, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to put there? When the angel showed up, they dropped down like dead men, hardened soldiers, fearing for their lives. Nevertheless, they saw the empty tomb. They were there when the angel broke the seal and rolled away the stone that enclosed it. They were there when the angel told the women that Jesus wasn't there. That that they could look in and see the folded grave clothes. They could hear the announcement that Jesus is alive and see the joy and excitement on those faces of the women. 
And when they tell the religious leaders what is the Jewish response to the Jewish Messiah's resurrection from the dead, don't tell the truth, tell a lie. We will pay you so much money that you, you can even look disgraced in front of all the other soldiers by saying you fell asleep on duty. But don't, whatever you do, tell people what really happened. Their unbelief is not an evidence problem. It is a heart problem. To this, James Montgomery Boyce writes, How perverse is the sinful hearts of men. When Jesus was dying on the cross, the leaders taunted him, saying, Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe him. But now Jesus has done something even greater than that. He has been raised from the dead. Did they believe him? Of course not. They could not believe him because they would not believe him. Why would they refuse to believe the evidence that was before their eyes? The same reason people refuse to believe. They do not want... The same reason people refuse to believe today. They don't want to acknowledge the authority of the risen Christ over their lives. This is the third thing that we see this morning. The authority of the risen Christ. The women obeyed, telling the disciples all that has happened. Many have observed that makes these women the apostles to the apostles. They are the first ones to get the news of Jesus' resurrection. They are the ones who tell the apostles first, who will in turn take that message to the ends of the earth. Verse 16, Matthew says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The fact that all authority has been given to Jesus Christ means that God had vindicated him. God didn't just bring him back to life from the dead. When God raised him, he did so with the joy of his son's obedience to his plan as his father. A plan to save sinners. And therefore, he is set in authority above all things. It is a massive declaration that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the promised Lord. Do you remember the words that we we heard from Pastor Richard this morning from Philippians 2? Christ made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most humiliating, the most humiliating death possible. And yet it was a saving death. Therefore, Paul says, because he has done that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus died a death reserved only for the vilest of criminals. Death on a cross. But more than the shame of the means of his death was the power of the meaning of his death. Jesus' death was an atoning death. To bring us to God. He dies a perfect man for corrupt people. And for his faithfulness to go to the cross, God has justified him through his resurrection and exaltation, handing authority over all things into his care. Consider what that means. Consider what it means for Jesus to have all authority in heaven and on earth. It means he has authority over every angelic being. You know, I... When I'm driving through Bay City, I see that little angel shop. I just think, what do they do in there? You know, I mean, 
do, do they, they buy little kitschy statues because they think they look nice? Do they pray to angels because they think it's, it's going to protect them in some way? I, I don't know. All I know is this. Jesus has authority over everything in heaven and on earth. That means Jesus is Lord over every angelic being, whether it's in heaven or in hell. Jesus has authority over it. He has authority over every star and constellation and galaxy. He has every authority over every microbe and bacteria, every sickness and disease. He has authority over every storm and tornado and hurricane and tsunami. He has authority over every king and president and prime minister. He has authority over every war and tragedy. He has authority over every sports team and Fortune 500 company. He has authority over every detail of every life of every person who has ever lived including you and me. One person has famously said, there is not one speck of this universe that Jesus does not look at and say, mine. Mine. Because he is Lord of all things. He is Lord of all things. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know where you're at spiritually. You may or may not believe the testimony of Jesus and his disciples. You may not believe Jesus died and came back to life. But I hope that you see this very clearly if it is true if it is true that jesus died for sins on the cross and rose back to dead if it is true that when he was raised up god gave him all authority in heaven on earth it changes everything if christ is raised then believing in jesus and following jesus is the most important most urgent most crucial thing in our lives everything else pales in comparison to that. So today we need to examine ourselves and we need to ask, is Jesus the authority in my life? Is Jesus the risen Lord? Have we relinquished control and said it's yours? Have we relinquished control over our money, over our relationships, over our time, over, uh, over our, our, our desires and passions? Have we given it all to Jesus and said, you are the authority. Direct me and tell me how to live. You'll notice Matthew says, some doubted. Now, isn't that interesting? So, some will say, you know, the Gospels are just complete works of fiction. I have news for you. If you're writing fiction about the ascended Lord of all things, the hero of the story, you don't write some doubted, okay? You, you, you don't do that. You say, all believed. It was a great day. No, it says they believed and worshipped, but some doubted. Those two words alone should put to rest any idea that Matthew is writing fiction. But more than that, they should give us comfort. Because if you are like me, you don't have perfect faith. There are days and there are times you doubt. You doubt. And it's in this very next verse that Jesus, that Matthew rather, tells us how to overcome that doubt. And that is this, the reality that Jesus has all authority. Is the same Jesus who throughout this gospel has loved sinners and had compassion on them and healed their bodies and put up with their feelings for 33 years. Just imagine for a second being Jesus. You are the one being in all the universe that deserves every, every ounce that can be possibly mustered of worship and homage and respect. And you never get it. You never get it. For 33 years, you're just walking, living among humanity, and they never give you what you deserve. More than that, you see them every day worshiping everything else in the world. Perhaps it's a false god they've made up. Perhaps it's themselves. Perhaps it's their wealth. Perhaps it's sex. Whatever it is, they are worshiping anything and everything but you. 
Man, if I was Jesus, the world would have come to an end the first day. I'm not putting up with that. But I'm not Jesus, and I'm not in all authority. He is. And he was patient with sinners. He was kind towards them. The Bible says that God is kind towards sinners because he doesn't just wipe us out. The end has not yet come. That means though you doubt, there is still time. God is giving you time to believe, to acknowledge the lordship of Christ, and to follow after him. This Jesus who has authority was patient and tender and showed compassion towards sinners. He was always good, and he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. One day he will judge the earth. One day he will return and bring it all to a close. But until then, he says, come, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are so tired of trying to live a good life and earn your own way to heaven, come to me and find rest for your souls. I will give it to you. For those who do believe, for those who acknowledge and treasure Christ's lordship, there is finally the command of the risen Christ. The command of the risen Christ. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you are a member here and you've been here for the last couple of years, you know we've talked a lot about making disciples. What, what is it? It simply means this, teaching people how to live under Christ's authority. That's all disciple making is. If you're going to make a disciple, if you're going to be a disciple, it is learning to live under Christ's authority. It's not about decisions. It's not about signing cards. It's not about even coming to this church. It is about living as a Christian, living a life of faith-filled obedience and worship with joy. All of us here today need to hear, heed what Christ has commanded, either by becoming a disciple for the first time or by committing ourselves as disciples to be about the business of making disciples. And notice God doesn't expect us to do this on our own. We can only have success in obeying this command because Christ has all authority. Have you ever not realized that he, he sandwiches this command to go to every nation and make disciples with these two promises? I have authority over all things, and I will be with you until the very end. That's the only way you can fulfill the promise. Or the command is by those two promises. He has all the authority. He's doing the heavy lifting of disciple-making. He has the authority to break down sinful barriers, to soften hardened hearts, to make people who are blind to spiritual truth see through the power of the gospel. In the end, the question is not, are we good at making disciples? It's, are we faithful at trying to make disciples? Pastor John Piper from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis is famous for viewing this calling of Christ on our life to make disciples in contrast to the assumptions of what our life should be like in 21st century America. Of all the things that he has said and all the sermons he has preached, for me, one stand, stands out in blinding clarity, and I want to read a part of it for you this morning. He says this, This is a tragedy. The title of the article, Start Now, Retire early. February 1998 of Reader's Digest. Here's what the article says. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. 
And there are people in this country spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I plead with you, don't buy it. The American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement collecting shells. As the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did, here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Lord, look, look at my shell collection, and I've got a good swing, and look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Don't waste your life. It is so short and so precious. I grew up in a home where there was a plaque in our kitchen for all my years growing up, and now it hangs in our living room. I have looked at it almost 48 years daily. It says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. This is why Jesus came. This is why he was crucified. This is why he rose from the dead with all authority and promised to be with us to the end of the age to create peoples whose sins are forgiven, whose hearts are so full of the love of God, who are so emboldened by the triumphant Christ that they spend their lives with risk and sacrifice and love to help others know and enjoy the greatness of Christ forever and ever. We have a command from the risen Lord to make disciples as we go unto the lost world. And we can accomplish that because we live under the authority of Christ himself who is authority over all things. So this morning, Christian loved ones, rejoice. Rejoice, for Christ is not dead. The tomb is empty, but the throne is not. The Lord is risen. Father, we are so thankful for that reality. The reality of the risen Christ. And God, we pray that you would help us, God, to see that glory and the implications of what it has for our lives. Father, we pray for those that have never confessed Christ as Lord. Perhaps they've gone to church, perhaps they, they think that they know you, but Father, they realize now that they have never truly trusted Christ to be the Savior that brings them to yourself. They have never sought to live under the authority of his risen kingship over all things. Father, open their hearts today. Grant them faith to believe this gospel truth, to trust in Christ and to live for Him. God, may that be also the daily experience for those of us that do know You through Him. Father, in every way, make, make the reality of the resurrection evident in our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray.